Hey, this is Vivian Campbell, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. All right, Metalheads, welcome back for yet another week of Focus on Metal with myself and... And Richie. Yeah, via the wonderful world of Skype again. Yeah, just just great. But anyways, good to talk to you again on this very uh, odd occasion of actually reaching episode 500, at least in the, uh, the official countdown, although we've exceeded that with all the special episodes and all that. But from an, uh, from an episode count, weekly episode, yeah, this is actually finally episode 500. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I jumped on board. I think around fifty something. It's yeah. It's been a while. It's 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 definitely been a while. It's uh, kind of uh, it's kind of similar to uh, almost like the, uh, the our, this week's guest, right? Where you know here he is. He's the he's the guy who came in, filled in with another member passed away, and he's been there longer than the original guy was. So uh, yeah, you kind of uh, in the same mold, ironically. Although no one died in this case, but you know, same deal. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've been at nine years or something I've been doing it. You've been doing a what, 11? 11, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so not quite the big, you know, episode 500 bonanza that a lot of shows would do when they, if they, if they ever reach this point. But uh, anyways, I, you know, with everything going on and being busy and everything, I thought that you came up with a great idea this week and throw in another great career retrospective, especially somebody who's been around and done so many different things like Vivian did. So I thought, yeah, it's, that's a pretty cool topic to throw out there for episode 500. Yeah, well, he was probably one of the top of my bucket list guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, like with Doug, Doug Aldridge, we did him. He had loads of bands. Red Beach had loads of bands that I loved, and and Vivian as well. And uh, I don't know how many of these he's done, um, where he, someone's gone through his career in chronological order. Mm. Um, so I, I just hope I ask some questions that uh, people get something out of, you know, that are a little bit different. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's it's a, it's a good topic. And, you, and like I said, there's lots of different bands to cover and stuff. And there's always little bits and pieces and stories and trying to clear a few misconceptions and kind of uh, metal legends out there as well. So, uh, yeah, that was overall pretty good. And, and you know, we I do apologize in the beginning to some of our radio partners where we have shorter time frames with you guys, but I did decide that we're going to run this whole one all in one go. So uh, for those of you that are listening on uh, kind of the hour format on the uh, internet radio, uh, you will have to end up going uh, – over to either the website or to iTunes to uh, to get the rest of it, but uh, I'm just apologizing in advance and telling you that yeah, at some point we'll hit that hour and I'm going to have to cut it. But uh, we just decided I'm I'm doing it in one go. Yeah, well, it's episode 500. I think that's the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, again, great job. I, I thought that uh, you know, a good good topic to to do. And, uh, yeah, again, just somebody who's been around with, with so many different bands. And for some of them, you know, we've touched on, you know, these bands before with uh, Shadow King. You know, we had, uh, what do we have, Kevin on from Shadow King. And we've had guys on uh-huh. from, from Last in Line and from Dio. I mean, we did a whole series on a Dio album and stuff. So, yeah, we, we've touched on, on quite a few of them and, and um, you know, even talked with Viv before. So, yeah, it's I think it was it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So uh, who will I get on for episode 1,000? 
Let's, let's see if we can get up to 501 first, and then we'll see where we go from there. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. All right. So what do you say? We uh, we get right into it. Yeah, let's run it. We'll it's, roll it's a long one, but it's there a good it is. one. All right. Enjoy. Hey, Vivian, how you doing? Not so shabby, and yourself? I'm all right. So uh, where in New Hampshire did you move to? Uh, right by Portsmouth. Oh, Portsmouth, okay. I'm I'm living in Lowell, Massachusetts. I'm about 10 miles from the New Hampshire border. Oh, there you go, yes. Yeah. Neighbors, yeah, yeah. So when is the last time you got back to Ireland? Um, gosh, that is a good question. It's been, um, a, it's been a while for me, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, normally I get back there at least once a year. Yeah, two or three times, but um, I want to say it was June of 2019. So it's going on two years since I got back. Yeah, if I fly back now, I have to go into quarantine. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, yeah well, Ireland's a bit of a mess, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot more free over here. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the freer day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're in that state. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we got a lot to get into, Vivian. So I'm going to go through your whole career in chronological order. Um, okay, Grant. Did you come from a musical family? I did not come from a musical family, no. Um, I was told that my father's father, whom I never met, um, I was told that he played a bit of fiddle. But uh, that, that would be about it. I mean, no one in the family is musical. Um, there are many that might say, I'm not very musical either. <laughs> yeah. So what made you pick up the guitar? Like, was it was it some song you heard on the radio? Was it something you saw on TV? I It started for me, um, I, I don't know if it was 1970 or 71 or 72, it was sometime around then, um, Top of the Pops, I saw Mark Bowen on TV. That's when I had my light bulb moment. I thought, that's not a bad way to make a living. <laughs> so um, I just started growing my hair from that point on. But then it was several years before I actually got my hands on a guitar. And, you know, it was a, a slow process actually learning how to play it, you know, because I, I couldn't find anyone to teach me. And any time I came across anyone who had a guitar or knew how to play, and I'd be like, begging, I'd be this annoying kid. Please show me a chord, show me a chord, or show me this or that. So um, it, it was a very slow process. So it was Mark Bowen got the the ball rolling, but by the time I actually had a, an instrument and was getting serious about playing, it was Rory Gallagher. Ah, uh, Rory. Yeah, so the Rory, first album I owned was Rory's Live in Europe, 1972, uh, which I got as a Christmas present in Christmas of 72. So I would have been... 10 years old then and um, so yeah Rory Rory was my guy plus you know it was North, North of Ireland in the 1970s as you well know but <laughs> nobody wanted to come play there except you know Rory would come every Christmas and play a, a couple of shows at the Ulster Hall in Belfast and so not only was it the, the first album I had but it was also the first concert I saw and then the next year it was the second concert I saw and the year after that it was the third concert so it was quite a few years before anyone else actually came and played in Belfast Yeah, did, did you not go down to Dublin to watch concerts? No, and not, not before I had a driver's license and a car. You know, I'm talking about when I was about, you know, 12, 13, 14. You know, it was nothing but Rory Gallagher. Okay. Um, what was the first guitar you ever brought with your own money? Um, the same Les Paul that I have now, um, the one that I uh, did the first Theo album and tour with. 
Holy Diver album. Uh, it's a black Les Paul. Uh, the serial number is seven two nine eight seven five three seven. I've got a very intimate relationship with that instrument. Um, I own a lot of guitars, but if, if the house was on fire one night and I had to grab one guitar, it would be that one. You know, because I have a lot of sweat equity into that instrument. That's the instrument that I learned on. Uh, I bought that when I was fifteen. Um, <laughs> remember the uh, the trip they all the fire purchase mm-hmm. thing? Like not, I got I got a drawn up sign for me, and I I worked I I had to work a couple of years to pay off that guitar. It wasn't cheap even back then, you know. So, um, but that was that was the first one I paid for, and, and I, I worked every weekend, every school holiday, all summer, and you know, eventually paid it off. Mm, mm. It's great that you still have your first guitar because I can nearly count on one hand how many guitar players have answered that question in positively and said, yeah, they still have it. I think Richie Cotson was another one, but every guitar player I've asked, all they all regret getting rid of the first one. Oh, yeah. Well, I regret not continuing to play the last ball. I got seduced by the the, the pointy headstocks and the Langley bars. <laughs> mm. You know, when I, moved, when I moved to L.A. for the Holy Diver album, I did the album and tour with that last ball, but, you know, by the second album, uh, I'd gotten a hold of a Charvel Strat with the Wangy bar and the, you know that didn't quite have the pointy headstock but I had plenty of pointy headstock as far as the 80s um, you know you, you kind of get into all that those guitars were kind of all the rage back then but you know I came back full circle rediscovered the Les Paul again and haven't played anything since really you know yeah. the thick bridge guitar certainly suits more of my style of playing I think you know? yeah so how, how old were you when you joined Sweet Savage um I, I was 16 when I met Trevor Fleming, and we started, you know, just jamming with a few other guys. Um, I was probably 17 by the time we actually had settled on that lineup and called it Sweet Savage uh, and started to write our own music. Um, you know, so it was only for a few years. Um, and then the deal thing happened, you know. I mean, we 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 definitely tried with Sweet Savage. I mean, we we definitely knocked on as many doors as we could find, you know. We uh, did a couple of indie singles. We went across the water uh, the first time, you know. We, we opened for Budgie, which is a band not too many people know, but um, we opened a half dozen or so shows with them. I remember playing. Uh, the highlight of that little short tour was playing the original Marquee Club on Wardour Street, you know, mm-hmm. it's uh, definitely a, a big thing for us. While we were over there on that, we managed to score a session with Tommy Vance on the Friday Rock Show. So we went into the BBC studios, uh, recorded four songs for that, I think. And, you know, so we we got a publishing deal then uh, at the time also. And then we went back to Belfast and we'd be opening for the Motorhead, Wild Horses, any any rock group, Wishbone Ash, even any rock group that would come through Belfast trying to get on the bill with them. Um, we also were the first band to play the very first Slane Castle Festival in 1981, August of 81. So, um, you know, we, we had opportunities. We, we, you know, people were starting to hear us and whatnot, but for whatever reason, we just didn't score a record deal. You know, we just didn't quite get there. And uh, we we tried and tried and you know so and that one night I got a call from Jimmy Bean about flying over to London to audition for Ronnie Dio for some new band so 
that was that, you know. I uh, I kind of, <laughs> I, I had it off into the world. I mean, I was determined I was going to have a career as a guitar player. I mean, that was that was just, you know, my goal, my target. And I felt like I, I, I tried with Sweet Savage. I felt like we tried, you know, we did what we could. And for some reason, it just didn't kind of all come together for us. And then, you know, in, in later years, Metallica actually covered a Sweet Savage song, I'm sure you know, Kelly yeah. on their on their Garage Days record. And, you know, and, then, and in a way, it was kind of like a validation for us because, you know, Metallica sounded, sounded a lot like Sweet Savage or Sweet Savage sounded a lot like Metallica, which I know you won't but it. You know, James Hetfield in particular sings a lot like Randy Haller has a very similar sort of style. You know, Randy was a best player and singer in Sweet Savage. And, you know, so I... I you know, I think even though we didn't kind of break through, we, we kind of made our mark. You know, we, we influenced other bands to some extent, other musicians, so that was something. Yeah. Um, did you know Metallica were going to cover Killing Time? Because I'm sure the checks were probably nice when, when they released it. Oh, the, the, yeah, it was nice to get a check. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that is after, after writing the song. I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, was... 16, 17, like when, when I came up for the rep for that and when we, the, the rest of the guys in the band, we wrote the song, you know, so it's it's interesting. In fact, it's it's uh, exciting that, you know, decades later, you actually get a check in the mail for something you created when you were a kid. Um, but no, I didn't actually know they were going to do it until after it was there, you know, and then, um, you know, I'm sure I had to sign some piece of paper somewhere to say I was cool with it, but, um, yeah, we were very flattered by it. Mm. Now, when you're trying to play shows in, in the North, and I, I, I'll give you a kind of an analogy that I had. I, I, I grew up playing cricket, and I played for Munster, and when I went up to play in the North, it was a predominantly a Protestant sport that, you know, you could, go, you could only play in certain places up there. And w- was it the same when it came to bands, though, when, when it came to playing in halls and that, that... Some halls oh, were, were oh, Protestant yeah. and Catholic, so there was there was a, a limit on where you could actually play up there. Absolutely, you got. We got very well schooled in how to just keep your mouth shut in certain places. You know, there were four of us in Sweet Savage. Myself and Remy were the two Catholics, and uh, uh, Davy Bates, the drummer, and Trevor Fleming, the other guitar player, were, were both Protestants. So you know, we were evenly split on it, and. Uh, you know, certain bars and clubs we were playing, you know, if it was in a Catholic area or a Protestant area, you know, the, the, the two two guys would do the talking and the other two would shut up. <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, it's just sort of a survival mechanism, you know, but, you know, but amongst people of our generation and our age, you know, and, and you know, kids of that age who were in the hard rock at the time, I mean, that wasn't an issue, you know, but there was always somebody who was, in their thirties or forties and looking very menacing, you know, asking questions about where are you lads from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you learn you learn to have a cover story, you know. <laughs> um now you, you you're good mates now with Jeff Pilson. Did he ever tell you the story about the dock and bus getting petrol bombed in eighty six in Belfast? He did mention that to me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, welcome to Belfast. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll move on to Dio. Oh, yeah. yeah, so we'll move yeah. on to Dio, baby. Um, what songs did you play when you auditioned for Dio? Uh, we played one song. We played Holy Diver over and over and over and over again. Um, the night that we met uh, was some September, I think. 
uh, yeah, September of 1982. Uh, I, I got the night, literally the, the night before I got a call, um, Jimmy Ben, who was who had played in Wild Horses and Sweet Savage had opened for Wild Horses for a half dozen shows around Ireland. Um, and Jimmy, I don't know really how he got my number. I'm guessing he just looked in the phone book or called directly inquiries or something because my father was called Vivian and he would have been the only Mr. Vivian Campbell in the very small phone book for Northern Ireland. Um, so I, I'm guessing that's how Jimmy got the number. And he called him. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and he woke my dad up. <laughs> and, uh, so I just remember my dad came around and, and woke me up at 2 in the morning and said, there's a drunken Scotsman on the phone for you. So uh, I went downstairs and took a call and talked to Jimmy. And, and he said, you know, I'm here in a hotel room with, with Ronnie, James Dio, and Jimmy Apice. And they've both quit Black Sabbath. And they're here looking for a guitar player for a new band. And... Uh, can you fly to London tomorrow? <laughs> so my father, God bless him, I mean, despite being woken in the middle of the night, he actually bought my ticket to fly to London because I didn't have the money for it. Um, so I flew over there with 1797-537, the aforementioned Les Paul, and uh, we went into this rehearsal room. I rented a Marshall amp a cab, plugged in. Ronnie at the time had more or less finished the song Holy Diver. That that and part of Don't Talk to Strangers were the only songs that he had on the go back then. So he, you know, Ronnie played a bit of bass guitar. He could find his way around a bass. So he picked up Jimmy's bass and he kind of showed me the dun da dun da dun 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 you know, all that. And we discussed the arrangement. And then we just started playing. And, you know, we finished playing and then Ronnie would roll a joint. <laughs> Those guys would get as a kite. Hmm. And, uh, I'm sure I got a contact guy. I wasn't a pot smoker but back then, but you know, I'm sure being in the room is a definite contact guy. And, uh, those guys were mad smokers back then. Um, and we just, we played the song, played it over. And I remember the, the, um, when it came to like doing a solo section, you know, I, like any young guitar player, you, you kind of, you want to play faster and, you know, get all the, the stupid stuff. So I get all my licks in and whittly, 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 whittly. And then I kind of realized that I've exhausted the, the toolbox of licks. <laughs> I don't surely have anything left here to offer. I look over at Ronnie and he's given that, you know, the universal kind of play more and more like, you know, extended, play longer, play longer. And I'm thinking, shit, I have nothing more to compare with myself. So, so I, I regress to just playing basic double stop Chuck Berry, like really simple rock and roll kind of stuff, you know, real, I guess feel stuff is what it was, you know, it was just kind of kind of groove and, 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 and play rhythmic, you know, easy kind of simple rudimentary stuff. Now, Ronnie was recording all this on a cassette tip and just to jump fast forward, uh, at some point while we were doing the Holy Diver record, Ronnie, dug out the cassette and he was sitting there and he played it for me and so we're listening to the night that I auditioned for the band and you know the, all the widdly 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 notes passed and then it came to that part where I was just playing the basic stuff and, and Ronnie pointed to the cassette um, player and got very animated and very excited and that's it he says well, as soon as you started playing like I said that's when I knew you were the guitar player for me so basically when I ran out of shit to play <laughs> but but like I said, it became, it became a feel thing. You know, I, I, was, I wasn't trying to impress anymore by playing all those silly little whittly whittly licks. I mean, I was, I was trying to make something up and be spontaneous, and that's what he was 
what he was talking about, you know. But that was the first night that we met the four of us, and Ronnie sat us down at the end of the night and, and said, you know, he'd quit Sabbath. He had a record deal that was ostensibly a solo deal for him, but he didn't want to be a solo artist. He didn't want to do a solo record. He wanted to have a band project, and he said, we're going to call it D.O. for obvious name recognition, and he said, you know, this is when Ronnie made the promise to us that, that kind of got me fired, because I, I, I'm very big on principle, and, and you know, when a man looks in the air and shakes my hand, and, and we have a deal, I expect that we're going to uphold that deal, and, and the deal was, and Ronnie told us that night, with just the four of us in that room, he said, you know, um, he says, by the third album, he said, I can't afford to pay you much money. He says, you know, you're going to be working for very little money, but we're going to write, you know, records together and we're going to go on tour and we're going to project this as a band. Um, and he said, by the third album, we'll make it an, an equity situation. So that's, you know, just jumping ahead a few years, you know, through the third album, which was a super hard album. I was guy going to Ronnie saying, hey, uh, Ronnie, you know, when can we talk about this? And mm. I just... Anyway, the rest is all kind kind of history, except the history, you know, I still to this day, you know, bump into people who say, Why did you leave the deal down? Why did you leave the deal? I never left the deal. I was fired for for trying to get Ronnie to uphold his bargain, his deal. Yeah. Anyway, um Vivian you know, but that's that's all water under the bridge now. Yeah. Vivian, were you naive to the, the business of music back then? Oh, completely, totally. I signed my publishing away to Ronnie and Randy Deal for the first album. So, you know, it was one of those sign here, kid, and we'll make you a star kind of thing. And I was like, oh, okay. So, um, you know, yeah, I was totally good into the whole business. I was, you know, very susceptible to, to that sort of influence, you know, that they exerted. Mm. Do, do you know, did, um, did they try out any other guitar players for Dio after you? And, and how long did they leave you wait before they told you you were in? Oh, I, I don't really know. I know that, that Ronnie played with Jakey Lee because Wendy, you know, Wendy Deal was, was Ronnie's manager and um, she managed a band called Rough Cut yeah. back in L.A. at the time. And, and Jakey Lee was the original guitar player on Rough Cut before he went to play with Ozzy. So when I first showed up in L.A. to do the Holy Diver record, um, Jake was still with Roughcut at the time and I know that prior to I think it was prior to coming to London um, when I met Ronnie and Vinny it, it, I think prior to that he he and Vinny had played with Jake in LA um, in fact there's a bit of a rumor I've heard before that, that, actually, that Jake actually was responsible for writing a fair bit of Don't Talk to Strangers <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's 100% true I've heard that from several sources um, you know it'll be interesting to, to ask Jake the question but I haven't seen Jake in many many years um, so that, that's the only other guitar player I know that they played with before and after that night that I played with them okay um, you said over the years that you and Ronnie had very different personalities in what in what way was your personality very different to his though? Was it was it just an age thing, or, or was there more to it than that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was mostly an age thing, and my naivety. You know, I was really young. Um, I was very nervous around him, to be sure. You know, he. I. This is a guy who I'd grown up listening to. I mean, I had long live rock and roll, um, Rainbow Rising. You know. Uh, Heaven and Hell was actually the first Sabbath album I ever owned. You know, I was much more into Sabbath, Sabbath with Ronnie than with Ozzy. And 
you know, so this guy was a hero to me, you know, and then to be going from this wee band in Ireland all the way across the world to L.A., and, you know, being <laughs> being in the studio with, with someone who you were listening to just a few months before on record who you've been reading about for years, you know, it was very unsettling for me, you know, and I, I don't think I could ever really fully relax around them. Um, you know, plus there were aspects. I mean, everyone, you know, no one is black or white. You know, we're all different shades of gray in our personalities, and some days are better than others for people, you know. And, and Ronnie and I bumped heads on a few things at, at different times, and then there were other times when we, we had a great laugh together, you know. But I always felt that reverence and that respect for him that made me kind of like this nervous little kid around him, you know. And in some ways, you know, it wasn't a bad thing. I mean, he kind of projected a lot of that. Uh, protective sort of vibe towards me, you know, like he, I could sense that he was proud of me in a way, and he was proud of the fact that he discovered this guitar player from this wee obscure band in Ireland, you know, and I'm brought to LA, and like, this is, you know, this is my guitar guy, look what I found, you know, but I, I felt when I landed in LA, my confidence took a real hammer as a guitar player, because, you know, the whole GIT, the Guitar Institute of Technology, everyone was just so phenomenally good. You know, I was bumping into guitar players all over the place and they were just so, so, so much better than me technically. You know, and I, I just couldn't get my head around. I couldn't understand why Ronnie didn't hire one of those guys. You know, I, I understand it now because a lot of those guitar players lack a personality. You know, they do kind of sound the same because of the way they're taught. But um, whereas because I was self-taught, I, I did end up with a very idiosyncratic sort of style. You know, that is very unique, and that's what Ronnie recognized, and that's what he wanted. But at the time, in my early 20s, I mean, I, I just couldn't see that, you know, I couldn't understand it. Um, but, but Ronnie was very protective of me, you know. He tried to shelter me from a lot of all that 80s Hollywood stuff that was going on. You know, as you can imagine, there was a lot of a lot of craziness. But, uh, <laughs> on the other hand, the, the other side of the, the coin is that, that, you know, he and Wendy did actually get me to you know, sign off my publishing on that first record. You know, I was like, okay, what are you saying, Mr. and Mrs. B? Sure, that sounds like a great idea. Man, was it? That was like the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> now, you said over the years as well, Vivian, that um, you butted heads with him when he was producing you. Like, what did you want from him as a producer? I always felt that the best producers in the world are the ones that make you feel comfortable and make you feel relaxed so that you can give your best performance. Um, you know, Ronnie knew what he wanted, and, and he was, you know, very talented in, in many departments, not just the singer. I mean, he was a, a very capable producer, especially for for for, for the band, you know, for Daniel's band. Um, but he didn't have that kind of touchy-feely sort of aspect of his personality to make you feel at ease. In fact, quite the opposite, you know. Um, so I actually, by the second album, by the time we were doing the last of mine album up at Caribou Ranch up in Colorado, I actually persuaded Ronnie and Angela, the engineer, to just leave me alone in the studio while I was kind of working on ideas for solos. Um, again, but this is also part of my uh, my personality and my being uncomfortable around them and having them kind of stare at me while I'm trying to work shit out. <laughs> you know? mm. In hindsight, I should have I should have done a lot more homework prior to getting into the studio, but and I did on certain songs. But there were some tunes where it's like, you know, we were writing them. We wrote a lot of that album in the studio, the last uh, last in line record. Um, 
you know, until we we're coming up with the stuff pretty quick, you know, we just finished writing the song one day and then we're cutting the track the next day. And then the day after I'm expected to do the guitar solo. And so I'm trying to figure out stuff. And, and I, you know, it, it was a, a big, comfortable kind of studio, like way in the middle of nowhere. And there were a lot of other activities for people to go and, you know, occupy themselves with. So they, you know, nobody was too upset about it. I just think, guys, can you just leave me here for an hour or two while I try to figure out something to do on this and uh you know so i would literally hit you know these were two inch recorded this is way before pro tools and all that stuff so i'd literally hit the play and record button you know and, and i'd get some if i got something i liked you know I'd, I'd stick my head out in the hall and call angelo back and say hey can you come back and set up another track for me you do that and then i'd try something else so i'd maybe do that two or three times and then i have ronnie come in and ronnie would say okay yeah i like that or i don't like that why don't you try this and that so you know, he, he, there was good and there was bad to it, but, you know, I, in later years, you know, I have had the, the privilege of, of working, albeit briefly, in the studio with Mutt Lang, you know, and, and <laughs> that's like a whole different caliber <laughs> and other producers that I've worked with in the past. And, and a big, big part of, of what makes a producer successful is getting the artist relaxed, you know, and getting them into the right headspace where they're going to give the best performance they can give, you know, and I, I don't think Ronnie had that. Mm. You know, that that was one 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 tool from the producer's toolkit that he did known. Yeah. Um what surprised you more? The fact that you were fired or the timing of it? Um the the timing of it, I mean it it was a shock to me. So all through the recording of the Sacred Heart album, album number three, I went to Ronnie and I, I should preface this by saying that Ronnie and Wendy, his wife, had separated around this time, and uh, Ronnie had moved out, or sorry, Wendy had moved out. One of them had moved out of the house. They were living living alone, and uh, Ronnie's mood was really, really dark on the Sacred Heart record, and so it was a very difficult record for us to make because of that. Nobody really wanted to be around the studio much, unlike Holy Diver and Last of Mine, where there was a real team effort and everyone was encouraging of everyone else and always hanging around the studio together. Um, in Sacred Heart, we kind of would do our parts and we would leave. And that that wasn't just me. That was, that was true of Vinny and Jimmy, too. Nobody kind of wanted to be around this this dark cloud. So at different points, you know, I'd, I'd go to Ronnie and I'd say, you know, uh, I just wanted to kind of bring this up with you. Do you remember that night, you know, in London? Uh, when we first met and you mentioned the third album and all that and he was okay we'll, we'll, let's get the record done we'll talk about it later so I leave it for a few months we get the record finished we're in rehearsals for the tour I bring it up again and so we'll, look, we'll talk about it when we're on the road we go on the road we start the Sacred Heart Tour in North America the first leg of the American tour so I, I keep trying to bring it up it keeps getting pushed up then there's a break in the tour uh, between the first leg of America and, and when we're supposed to start in the UK. So at that time, I go back to Ireland to my parents' house and, and visit my family. And while I was there, I got a FedEx and uh, envelope, and inside the envelope was a contract and um, and a letter saying that if I didn't sign and return this contract within 48 hours, I would no longer be part of the band. And 
And the contract offered me like a couple hundred bucks more a week. And, you know, even if it was a couple of million more bucks a week, that wasn't the thing. The issue with me, like I said before, which is principle, you know, I believe in principle and I believe in my word and I believe when somebody else gives me their promise, I got to take them like that, you know. So I, I tried to get Ronnie on the phone and he wouldn't pick up. I just kept getting his answering machine. And obviously this is pre-internet, you know, mm. no cell phones or email. Mm-hmm. So that was the only you know, line of communication I had with Ronnie and he obviously didn't want to talk to me. And then uh, about a week later, the UK tour starts and I'm still sitting in Belfast and my folks are and, and Craig Goldie's playing guitar with you, you know, so I, I got to imagine that, that it didn't just happen overnight, that this, this was set up, you know, in the weeks and months leading up to that. Yeah. Um, um, and it was just, it left, it left a really bad taste in my mouth for many, many years, you know, and, and then to, to add insult to injury, you know, Ronnie went um, on a bit of a, a press junket and, and at every opportunity said that I left the band and I didn't want to be in the band anymore, which is absolutely 100% untrue, you know, and, and still to this day, some people think that, you know, if I get these questions, why did you leave the Vivian, did, um, did Jimmy or Vinny reach out to you at all just after you'd been fired? Not in the immediate after, aftermath, no. Um, you know, it was that kind of camp where, you know, they had to, I totally understand why they had to kind of just put their head down and get on with their work. Mm. So you're at home now, and you decide to start a band at home. Is that right? Well, I, I was, I had this friend of mine, uh, Davey Watson, very talented bass player, singer, writer, guy, and so he had asked me to play on um, some demos of his, and he, Davey was living out in L.A. at the time, um, so we, we got together and we wrote some songs, cut some tracks and signed a drummer and yeah, I mean, we, we spent several months sending our reels really. We put together a band called the Trinity, wrote some songs, but it was, in hindsight now, it's really easy to see why we couldn't get any traction with that, with the record companies, because stylistically we were all over the map. I mean, we were doing like reggae songs. We were doing hard rock songs. We were doing straight up pop songs. <laughs> we were just kind of throwing stuff out there. I mean, we we didn't understand that you know when record companies come in to, to hear a band or you know a, an artist, they want to be able to market that. You know, and, and that was kind of the thing that that people were saying as well. You know what 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 lane are you trying to run in here, you know? Mm. Well, why do we have to decide? We just wanted the right song. You know, we you had that, that again that that youthful naivety of just like well, why should we be picking all that way? You know, but uh, there there's clearly a reason why they call it the record business. They're <laughs> <laughs> in the business of selling records. Um so anyway, so that, you know, we we just kind of spun our wheels with that for however many months. And um and then, yeah, one night, you know, it was obvious it wasn't going to go anywhere after a while. Then one night I got this call from John Kaladner, who was um, a very, very, very well-respected A&R guy uh, from Gaffin Records in L.A. And I had met John a few years before, and he'd called me up, and he said he was putting together um, a new band run, David Coverdale, a new version of Whitesnake, and... Uh, there's this new record that they just finished and would I like to hear it? Was I interested? And I said, sure, send me the record. And so he sent that to me and as soon as I heard, you know, the, the White Snake 87 record, I knew that was going to be massive for me. So I called John back and I said, yep, come in, I'll do that. Um, so you, you, were, you were signed up to be in the band and tour with the band. It wasn't just for the video. 
the, the, the first person on board with that project was Adrian Vandenberg. And um, Adrian had played the solo on the single version of Here I Go Again. And um, so at the time, I guess, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, you know, John Sykes was the guitar player on the record. And John wrote those songs with, with David. And, you know, it was just a phenomenal record. I mean, and a credit to John, not just as a writer, but as a player playing it. And it's amazing. And um, so... The, the band was kind of put together around, this was around the time when MTV was really getting hot and, and you know, it was a very image-driven band and, and John Kalarna wanted to put together a, a band of name players, you know, around around David to get a lot of press and, and generate a lot of interest. And um, So we flew out to LA and, and Adrian had already, like I said, been on board because he'd been in there a few months earlier and I played that, that one track on the record. And the first thing we did uh, was to shoot three videos over the course of a couple of weeks in L.A. And then we went into rehearsal, literally just for like two or three days. It was kind of outrageous, you know, like learn the songs, go into rehearsal. And I, I don't even think David was there for two of the three days that we were rehearsing, you know. And it was it was all just very haphazard the way it was kind of put together. So, um it was a strange sort of band, you know. It, it was definitely uh, a strange band at a strange time. And like I said, it was very uh, image-driven, you know. The fact that the first thing we did were three music videos and then photo shoots and then, oh, by the way, go in and rehearse for a few days before <laughs> you go on tour, you know. There was almost like the music was an afterthought. And, and, you know, when you look at the pedigree of the players in the band, I mean, all top-notch people, Adrian, as I said, Rudy Sarzo on bass, Tommy Elbert on drums, and yeah. myself on part. With, with Carl, it was a super group, you know. But it, at the same time, I personally, I didn't feel like there was a musical chemistry in that band, you know, because there probably could have been if we focused on it a bit more. But like I say, we're, we're thrown into the deep end of the, the the image part of the business, you know, and that that kind of is how we went on tour as well. Like when we went out on on tour. Uh, I just kind of felt like we were five individuals performing. <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, and especially especially you know coming from the the original Deal band, which had incredible chemistry right from the get go, you know, and was so so tight, you know, to be going from that to to that version of White Snake, and I remember just being up on stage thinking. It sounds a little loose, you know. It just doesn't sound like it's quite in the pocket there, you know. But but like I say, it was an unfair comparison because you know when when Jimmy and Benny and Ronnie and I played in the original deal, that it really was a phenomenal chemistry. I mean, despite our personal differences, you know, we we kind of made some great music together, and there was a real pocket to everything we did. Yeah, now Vivian, you're coming from one guitar band in Dio, and, you, and Adrian is coming from Vandenberg, which was his band. He wrote all the music, played all the guitar. Um, did you get a feeling, even at the rehearsals, that Adrian wasn't happy with having two guitar players in Whitesnake? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and he told me, Adrian and I never didn't get along. I mean, we both liked each other, and we still do to this day, but um, he made it very clear to me right from the very start that uh, when David had asked him to be part of the band, he forgot to mention there was going to be another guitar player, you know, 
and that's kind of how it came across, you know, like Adrian would say to me, you know, nothing personal to you, but, you know, I, I kind of do want to be the only guitar player in the band. So, you know, and then, you know, obviously having that information, you, you go on tour and you always think, okay, well, this is kind of weird, you know. Um, so you had these two guitar players who were sort of in a bit with each other, you know, and, and certainly we didn't listen to each other much, you know. But I'm not sure that any of us were really listening to the others. You know, it was, it was five individuals on stage, or so it felt to me. Yeah. Um, did you feel you had to defer to Adrian at all? Um, no, not until the very end of it all. I mean, we'd been on tour. We did six months opening for Motley Crue on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour, and the tour was a success. Um, and we went directly from that without even going home. I remember we went uh, to Saginaw, Michigan, to the arena there, and we rehearsed for about a week with a production with stage set, and then we went straight on to our own tour. And we were on the road for about a year and a half around the world. And it was during maybe like the last four, five, six months of that world tour that that it became apparent that, that Adrian was, was going to write all the songs with David, and then David eventually did tell the rest of us he said look you know uh, this is how it's going to go so we're going to go into the studio after the tour and we're going to do these songs that, that Adrian and I write and so I mean that did kind of make me question my future in the band you know that I wasn't going to be able to contribute in any way so and then one thing led to another there were other issues too you know little side issues and whatnot so um, I, I think it kind of it showed you know my, my unhappiness kind of Showed to David, and then eventually, you know, we kind of decided to call it quits. So I went back to LA. And, yeah, uh, that was it. So I mean, it was a very short-lived sort of a thing. Yeah, um, you brought out some. You were on, out with some great bands on that on there on that tour, like with Motley, and I think getting Macaulay Shanker out as well. So you would have had a chance to hang with Robin Macaulay, fellow Irishman. Correct, correct. Yes, 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 indeed. And um, Great White, I think, came out as well today at some stage. That's right. Yeah, Great White did the majority of the uh, the U.S. tours. Yeah. So when you left Whitesnake, did you start looking for other bands, or did Lou Graham come along first and ask you to play on Long no, Hard no, Luck? No, um, there was a bit of overlap with the Whitesnake departure because I was working, um, I was producing some demos for a band called River Dogs. Yeah. And so I, I literally went like the the day after I came home from the, the White Snake camp. I flew back to LA, and um, you know the next day I, I kind of went into work with River Dogs, and they were transitioning from their original guitar player who who didn't fit the band very well, um, and you know they had been asking me when we were recording those demos. You know they'd all say to me. At night, well, hey, would you mind playing some guitar on this and like fixing that? And I said, I don't really want to do that, <laughs> you know. I don't feel comfortable with that. You've got a guitar player um, that's between you and him to sort out, you know. So eventually, they did part ways with their guitar player, and I, I kind of, I was, like I said, I had one foot in the camp already uh, producing these demos. So I, I did actually join the band, and and we got a record deal with Sony, CBS Sony, um, and. Spend about a year or so writing songs, playing some club shows in the Southern California area, and essentially just looking for a producer, the right producer to get a record done. And, uh, you know, eventually we found a guy called Mike Fondelli went into the studio, uh, kind of butted heads with him a bit, too. You know, again, it comes down to personality and producer. Uh. Um, but, uh, 
you know, that, that were, those were musical, not so much personality, I guess. Those were musical issues that we were button heads with in this fun belly but, but, uh, and it wasn't just me. I mean, it was the whole band. Um, but uh, we, we got it done. We got a record made. And uh, unfortunately, during the time that we were making this record over the course of several months, um, the label had been sold. Uh, that's when Sony came in and bought the whole CBS venture. And so the majority of the key people that we'd begun working with were no longer there. So a lot of people were reassigned and stuff. So uh, I just remember the week that our record was coming out, we went to dinner with the new head of the record label, um, an English guy, and we flew over to LA. And I just remember being totally gutted <laughs> and you know, choking on my food as he was telling us that oh, I just don't really hear this record. I don't, you know, I think you guys should go back in the studio and write some more songs. Mm. Another year to make another record. Oh, and, man. You know, so it was just, it was heartbreaking, you know. And we'd been through a lot to get to that point, and it had been well over a year. Uh, and, you know, for me personally, I, I literally, I, I could not financially afford to not work for another year. You know, I've been paying my mortgage and stuff. And, and uh, a lot of the other guys in Riverdog, you know, I'd been taking money from the record budget to pay the rent and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I hadn't done any of that because I knew that they needed to and I knew that we needed to keep the budget there to make a record. But it had gotten to the stage where I, I literally couldn't afford to not to do something. So I, I started looking for other things. Um, I was still under contract to CBS Sony, even after River Dogs. Um, so I decided I was going to make my own record. I was just thinking, like, here I was, three for three, you know, fired from deals, sort of pushed out of Whitesnake, had to leave River Dogs because of the record company bullshit. Um, I was just really... I thought, you know, I'm destined never to be in a band. <laughs> you know, yeah. And so I'd, I'd also been working on my voice a lot since before I joined Whitesnake. You know, I got a lot of encouragement from here on that, and um, for which I'm most thankful. Um, you know, I worked with a bunch of different vocal coaches. So, uh, you know, I wasn't one of those guys who was born singing like Ronnie Dio or Lou Graham. You know, I've worked with some exceptional singers or Rob Lamoff, you know, from Riverdogs. But, uh, you know, I worked at it. And so I, I, I felt I was willing to give that a go and was working with a bunch of co-writers and learning the craft of songwriting. And so that's kind of the path that I was on. Uh, and then I got a call from Lou Graham about the Shadow King project. So uh, I got into doing that with Lou, but concurrent with that, I was still focused on making a record of my own. Um, but I mean, Shadow King was super short-lived. Like if, if Whitesnake was only like a year and a half or so, you know, Shadow King was... <laughs> A matter of months, you know. Mm. I want, um, Vivian, I want to get into Shadow King with you because I'm I'm a huge fan of that record. When when you did the song One Dream, that's credited as the Lou Graham band, that's the four of you guys that are playing on that, correct? That's correct, yeah. Um, was the was the band actually called Shadow King then, but it, you couldn't release the song under that name, or, or what was what was the problem I, there? I'm not I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I didn't pay a lot of attention. It could have been that we hadn't come up with a name yet, or it, it could have been that maybe that's on a different label. That's on a movie soundtrack, isn't it? Yeah, Highlander Two. Yeah, so so it, it's possible that that was the reason, you know, because Shadow King was uh, an Atlantic Records project. Um, plus, I was still under contract with Sony at the time, so it, it was a bit messy terms of the contract so it could have just been an, uh, an issue like that mm. now 
you get in the studio to record the Shadow King record and you clash with Bruce Turgeon, the bass player, um, because he didn't like the way you were playing the rhythm guitar part. So you only did the solos on that. Now, at that stage, you were probably thinking to yourself, this isn't going to last. I'm not going to get on well here with these guys. Is that, that a fair assessment? Uh, that's a, that's a fair assessment, Richie. Yes. Yeah. The right was on the wall yet again. So just like, so keep focusing on your solo record. You know, keep writing songs. Keep working on your voice. I mean, that was kind of what was what I was thinking. You know, mm. I mean, I knew it wasn't going to last. I mean, you know, you know, Bruce is a lovely chap and he's a very talented writer and all that. But you know, I I can't not play guitar the way I play guitar. I just remember Bruce telling me, you know can you not put so much vibrato on the chords when you play? And I literally can't not do that. That's just how I play. In fact, I didn't even realize I did that until Ronnie pointed it out to me once when we were doing the Holy Diver record. He said, mm. I love how you put vibrato on chords. And I said, I do? And he said, yeah, listen to this. Said, oh, and, and the reason I do it, like if any guitar players out there listen, you know, when you play a Les Paul, um, sometimes the tuning can be a bit fruity. You know, you can be in tune for an open position chord, like a first position chord. By the time you're five, six, seven frets up the neck, it's not quite as in tune as it needs to be. So that's why over the years, I... Uh, unbeknownst to myself, even you know, I, I, you know, developed this style of just kind of putting some vibrato on chords to to bring him into tune, but it actually became part of myself. So anyway, but I just remember Bruce saying to me, "Can you play it more like like I did on my demo? Like I did on my demo." And I just got to the center. I said, "Bruce, well, if you want it like it is on your demo, and you played it on your demo, you know, you're a competent guitar player, so." Why don't you play it? So, so the majority of the rhythm guitar tracks on the record were played by Bruce, I think, if memory serves. And then I just said, give me a call when you want the solos. You know, plus there were issues going on with Lou at the time as well with his personal life. He, Lou wasn't very present when we were making that record. Um, like, not at all present. You know? So uh, that was, you know, obviously that was a, a really tough time for Lou uh, and, his, and his personal life, but it, it also kind of made it a very tough situation for me because I didn't have this person who formed this band with me there to kind of back me up on anything. And I was kind of like, well, what the hell is going on here? Who's, who's steering this ship, you know? And Keith Olsen was producing the record as well. Yeah. And Keith, after, after a while, you know, when Lou sort of stopped showing up at the studio, Keith stopped showing up at the studio and started phoning it in. I mean, it really was. It was a rudderless ship. Wow. Record, so, and I, I know, uh, I know you said in the past that you were looking more for a free sound and it morphed into this AOR melodic rock polished act. Yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah. it was so going that, in a direction you didn't want anyway. Yeah. Cause you know, when Lou called me about it, you know, he professed his love of free and Paul Rogers and stuff. And, you know, Paul Tossett was a very influential guitar player for me when I was growing up. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I love that, 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 and that style of music, you know, like heavy blues, soul influence, you know, and, and Lou could certainly sing like that, you know, and I can certainly play like that. And, but then it just very quickly became something very, very different, you know. It just became basically an extension of of those first solo records that Lou had made with Bruce, you know. Mm. Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, nothing against Bruce at all. I mean, he was doing what he was doing. And, you know, he was following that path but there was, you know, it kind of very quickly fell away from what uh, it was origi- the original concept was supposed to be. 
you know. Yeah. Do you remember? Anyway, do you remember playing? Do you remember playing the show in London? You only did one gig with Shadow King. Yes, that was the only show we did. I think is it the Astoria? Yeah. I, I know I've only played there once. Yeah, the theater in London. And even before we went there, I mean, it was it was pretty obvious it wasn't going to hold together, you know. <laughs> and then the, the final the final straw was when we went on a, a promoter to promote the record. Uh, Lou and I, you know, I had my acoustic guitar. We were going to go visit all the morning radio stations, starting in New York City, and and Lou just literally didn't show up on the first morning of this two week tour. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I shouldn't laugh, but it is actually kind of comical. You know, it's like seven thirty in the morning. I'm in the lobby with my my freshly washed poodle hair. <laughs> I had a hair done in my kit back then, uh, and. Uh, my acoustic guitar, and I'm ready to go, and the tour manager comes out of the, out of the left and walks over and he says, Lee's not coming. So, oh, man. Uh, so, so, you know, it, it, it was a tough time for Lou, and I'm happy to say that he came through it, you know, and he's much much better for it. And, yeah. Um, you know, it's just one of those things that didn't work out. Yeah, so who who called you from Def Leppard then to join the band? No, Joe was the only guy I knew in Leopard. Um, I knew Joe socially. We had, we had a lot of... Uh, friends in common back in Dublin, you know, and, um, yeah, he lives, he's so been, li- he's been living person. there since what, 80, he lives in Booterstown, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, the Duke of Dublin, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, since the mid 80s, so, um, so anyway, yeah, so that was it, so Joe, Joe knew me, and, and about a year after his past, um, Joe called me up, you know, and said, um, said, you know, we have a very short list of people we're going to get together and play with, you know, to come into Leopard. I said, I think that you're the perfect person for it, so are you up for that? And You know, I, I didn't hesitate to say absolutely, but yet at the part in the back of my mind, you know, I'm thinking, here we go again, here's another band. I didn't mean to hear, here we go again as a little <laughs> wise reference, by the way. But, hmm. uh, you know, it's... I was thinking, gosh, you know, it's just this is Def Leppard. I mean, of course, I'm going to say yes to this, but at the same time, I mean, there's part of me is like shit scared. You know, here I go in another band, and like it just hasn't historically worked out well. You know, um, and Joe, like I said, Joe knew me personally. You know, I, the other guys in the band Leopard only knew me by reputation, and you know, my reputation was I was fired from the <laughs> I was fired from White Snake. You know, so I didn't really have this great reputation as, as being able to hold down a job in a band. Um, but Joe, you know, he he knew me and he said, I think you'd be the perfect fit for the band. And, and Leopard really is all about the personal fit. You know, it's it's not just about being the right guitar player or being the right songwriter or being the right singer or whatever. It's about the personality and, and the cultural references, you know, like the fact that we all grew up on the same music, you know, listening to Mark Bowen and T-Rex and David Bowie. And, you know, we, we grew up in, in the same time, you know, listening to the Friday Rock Show and reading signs and Melody Maker and NME and, you know, watching Faulty Cars and Monty Python and... Bring out your Football and stuff like that. So, you know, we, we had that sort of cultural reference and that cultural glue to keep us together, you know? Mm. So, anyway, so, you know, and then I, I met the other guys and my, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's an audition, you know, when I joined Leopard. It really was more like a courtship. You know, we kind of went in the room and we played together for a couple hours. But then, you know, we'd go to dinner the next day, we'd go to the park and kick a football around or, or you know, uh, 
I remember we even went to the movies to see IMAX or Rolling Stones and IMAX, you know. So, and then we go back to the rehearsal room, we play some more, and we'll be talking about football. You know, and this kind of went on over a week or two, you know, just kind of feeling each other out and, and you know, getting getting to know each other. And, uh, mm. Vivian, the playing the guitar, I'd say it was a given in Leopard, but how much did you have to up your game as a singer to sing those songs? Because there's vocals everywhere on all those songs, and they're all hits. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, they, Joe kind of knew, you know, somewhere in my conversations, my social get-togethers with Joe, you know, I'd, I'd mentioned to him that, hey, you know, I'm actually making a record of my own and I remember playing him some demos that I'd recorded and he was like wow so, you know, you, I didn't know you could sing and so when I went into the room to play with Leopard for the first time I think you know the other guys in the band were very pleasantly surprised I mean, they all knew I could play guitar they heard me on record um, you know but they had no idea that I could actually sing and, and like you said I mean the Leopard thing is all about the vocals I mean every one of us were always singing off every single song you know so that was definitely a plus, and, and obviously my voice has come along uh, a lot since joining Leopard. I mean, there's there's also a certain sort of a Leopard style, and, and Joe did give me a little personal insight into that. It was actually quite comic. I had a little Honda at the time. I remember driving around L.A. <laughs> with, with Joe, and we're both singing like Animal and Pour Some Sugar, and he's trying to teach me like, how, how to sing in the Leopard style. Like, I mean, if there was a... If there was a camera in there, it would have been comedic, you know. Um, so, yeah, that was, a, you know, I went in there. Not only did the other guys didn't know that, that I could sing to some extent, and uh, furthermore, you know, Joe had kind of coached me in, in how it is you're supposed to sing in that book, you know, uh, the style of, of vocal. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. It's, it's been almost 30 years. I'm now yeah. past the 29-year mark just last week or so and I'm now into my 30th year with Leopard I remember celebrating my 30th birthday on the first tour shocking so this one did work out I'm happy <laughs> now finally finally uh, finally Vivian now a lot of I know everyone asks you about the Freddie Mercury tribute concert I'm not going to ask you about that one I want to know what your memories of playing McGonagall's in Dublin a few nights before how nervous oh, yeah. were you doing that one yeah, so that was my very first actual show. Yeah. You know, that was McGonagall's, and, and it was familiar turf for me because I played McGonagall's a bunch of times with Sweet Savage, you know, uh, back when I was 17, 18, 19. And, um, yeah, I mean, all, all club shows are, are kind of nervy for me, much, much more so than the big shows. So I guess I would have been kind of, you know, nervy about it. Certainly mm. I was more nervy about that than I was about the Freddie Mercury show. Um, again, it's the proximity thing, you know, when you're in a club, people are right there in front of you, so that, that's, that's pretty, you know, it's pretty intense. But we were very well rehearsed. I mean, we we rehearsed a lot prior to that. You know, I, I want to say it was like two, maybe even three months of rehearsals leading up to all that stuff. You know? mm. Now, I, the first time I ever saw Def Leppard was on the tour in The Point in Dublin. And you were in the round at that stage. Now, you I don't know if you'd ever played in the round before. Like, What's the big challenge for playing in the round and playing on a normal stage for you? Um, I, I've never played in the round prior to that tour. Um, it, it's different in a lot of ways. There's no front row, so you're not fifth in any one particular uh, orientation. I mean, there's essentially three 
front rows, yeah. you know, or four, depending depending on how you want to look at it. But um, we had three mic positions each, so you couldn't just stand around your mic position. You're constantly moving, you know, and go over. You'd sing a chorus on one mic. By the time you get to the second chorus, you got to make sure you're at one of the other two mics. By the time you get to the final chorus, you're at the third. And because of that, you're not hearing a lot of backline. Now, this was the early days of the in-ear monitors. Um, I remember at the time, Joe and Rick were both on the in-ears, um, but the rest of us weren't. Phil and Sal and I, uh, we all are now in recent years, but uh, but back then we weren't. So it, it's kind of hard to hear. You know, you don't have a lot of proximity to your backline. And, uh, you know, for, for certain songs, that can be problematic because, you know, as guitar players know, sometimes you really want to hang on to a note. Mm. Uh, and to do that, to do that, you've got to be within spitting range of your speaker tabs and at a certain volume. You know, um, now Phil found a very clever work away by, a workaround by having that sustainer thing on his guitars, which works a treat and actually became part of the leopard sound. It's a big part of it, you know. Um, so that that was a bit of a challenge. It was it just took a, a little getting used to, you know. And, and it's obviously a younger man's game because you're bouncing all over the place, you're constantly moving. Yeah. Yeah. Now the first record you did is Slang, very different sounding Leopard album. Um, were you on board with the sound of that when when it was brought up? That or were you kind of nervous a little bit, saying, "Well, I thought Leopard were going to sound this way, and now we're going to sound like something completely different." Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's a great sounding record. I think it's sonically, it's a tremendous sounding record. I really like the drum sounds on it. I like the warmth of the vocal sounds. I like the guitar sounds. Um, it, it really is is organic in that way as a rock record. Mm. Probably the most, or it's the most organic rock record I think that, that Leopard's ever made. But I, I think in terms of songs, you know, we were kind of. Uh, Treading water, maybe I don't know. I mean, it was a, a very, very strange time. I mean, when we started the Adrenalize tour in um, late spring, early summer of 1992, you know, we were a full-on hair rock band, you know, um, and the tour again. This is a long tour. It was 247 shows over about 15 or 16 months around the world, a couple of times. By the time we'd finished that tour, 247 shows later, things were very, very different on the, the musical landscape. I mean, grunge was, you know, the the flavor of the moment. And we it was a difficult time to be a band like Def Leppard, you know? Uh, and then after that, we start writing songs and we get together to, to make the slang record. And there really was... Um, I... I don't feel like there was an awful lot of certainty about what it was we were going to be doing. And I don't really know if anyone had a clear idea of what kind of record we were going to make. The only thing I think that was for sure was that we couldn't make a record that sounded like Death Leopard. So that was really the only brief going in there. Hmm. Um, and, and for me as a new guy, you know, yeah, it was a little strange because not only is my first time in the studio with Def Leppard, but we weren't even in the studio. We decided to rent a house in southern Spain and essentially, you know, do a mobile record, So, uh, which was fine. That was, that was great fun. But um, we were kind of, you know, uncertain about what direction we were wanting to go. And, you know, for me, I, I kind of felt like... 
you know, maybe we we could have held on to some more of the adherence of what it is that makes a Def Leppard record, a Def Leppard record, you know, some more vocal production, some more thought maybe towards the melodic uh, integrity of songs, you know, but I, I certainly wasn't in a position to say that as a new guy, so I, I, I didn't. Um, but I, I think, you know, all in all, at the end of the day, we made the best record that we could under the circumstances and, and in that that atmosphere of, of so much uncertainty and change, you know, mm. uh, and a lot of people, a lot of people love the record for it. And like I said, I love the sonic integrity of the record. I, I'm, I'm an organic kind of guy anyway. So I, I do appreciate the, the organic approach that we took to, to actually recording that way and put yeah. old school microphones in front of speaker cabs for guitars, mm. you know, well, that kind of thing. And, and Rick played an acoustic kit, which, you know, also give it that uh, authenticity. Mm. Uh, Vivian, did you write "Work It Out" as a solo song, or did you write it as a le- for for Leopard? No, I, I wrote it after the Adrenalize tour specifically for the record. But my, my demo sounded nothing like the, the end product, hmm. uh, which is just just as well. <laughs> but there's a question. There's a question I wanted to ask you about about the songwriting with Leopard because I've spoken to you before promoting "Last in Line," and, and you said that the way you write and present songs to "Last in Line" is completely different to Leopard. Now. Is it? Do you have to have the full song for to present to Leopard and not just a snippet, or or, or is that just a too simple or an explanation? No, I mean we could start with a snippet with Leopard. You know, it has happened, um, but more often than not, um, when it comes to Leopard songs, if somebody will bring in something that's that's pretty fully realized. Uh, both as a song and as a demo, you know. Mm. Um, and then certainly for me, I, I'm not the kind of guy that can talk up a, a song idea, like you know, say, "Hey, I got this riff. Imagine this and imagine that." I'm just, I've never been that kind of person. I don't have that kind of confidence. Um, so for me, when I write something for Leopard, I, I try and flesh it out as much as possible. I try and make it as produced as possible, you know, which is a challenge for me because I'm not a technical person. Um, you know, but I had one stage uh, many years ago, I, I did actually have a, a pretty nice home studio set up and I, I kind of knew how to run it only because some clever guy had shown me how to, so I did it in a very Pavlovian manner. But it, it you know, at, at that stage of my life, I was able to, uh, you know, pump out demos that actually, you know, sounded reasonable, I guess, mm. you know. Uh, so now, now I'm kind of back into that again and trying to trying to rebuild that. Yeah. Skill. Now, who, who's who's the guy in Leopard that when they bring the song to the band, they don't want anyone to fuck with it. That they wanted to play it exactly like it is on the demo. Is there anyone like that, or are there not? Are, are no, no, nobody. No, 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 no one in the band. You 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 cannot be that person and be in Def Leopard. Uh, <laughs> it, it's everything is now thing is subject to change in Leopard, you know, and it doesn't matter like how far down the production road you've gone, you could have spent weeks on something and, you know, somebody has an idea, oh, let's do this that way and you could you just you know, throw throw out what you've done for the last two or three weeks and just start from scratch again, you know, and, and maybe only salvage like 5% of the original idea. So, so you know, you absolutely, you, you cannot be precious about anything that you bring to Leopard. And that's just, that's just part of the, the Leopard thing. You know, Def Leopard is, is the most unique band probably on the planet. I mean, I, having been <laughs> in 
quite a few bands in my career. You know, I I've, I can say with experience that there's not another band like Def Leppard. Just everything about the way the band works is is very unique. You know, mm. but, but it is it it all comes down to collective ego kind of thing. It's like, what is best for the music? What is best for the band? You know, it's not about individuals or whatnot. So you can't come in and be precious about a song. Mm. Now, the next couple of albums were a, a reaction to slang. So you got Euphoria in 99, more polished, highly melodic. There's some brilliant songs on that. I'm a huge fan of Paper Sun and Day After Day. I think you co-wrote one of those. Um, and then you've X, though, that came out in 2002. And that's the outside songwriters. Um, how, how did you feel yeah. about how did you feel about that? Because you're in a band, you're writing all the songs together yourselves. Did, did you feel you needed outside songwriters? No, not necessarily. It was just kind of the way it happened, you know. For whatever reasons, uh, we kind of just fell into that and we went with it. Um, you know, the, the Euphoria record. I will agree with it. That was a good album. Um, we had the, the pleasure to work with Mutt briefly on that record uh, you know he came in and spent a long weekend with us and uh, essentially turned around a few of those songs like I said earlier you know even if you've spent weeks or months working on a song you know if somebody comes in and has got an idea to make it better you know you just you go with that and you start all over again there's a, just a tremendous work ethic and, and leopard all in all you know and um so that record, Euphoria, turned out pretty good. And the fact that it's even named with an IA name like Hysteria, you know, uh-huh. Romania, you know, it was a very deliberate sort of a, like, peeking out from behind the curtain, like, is it, is it safe to be Def Leppard again, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And it, it has a much, much more polished, produced Def Leppard kind of sound overall. Um, and it, it was okay, so I'm not entirely sure why it is then for the X album that we kind of went a little bit in a new direction, you know, but, um, you know, I think around that time, there was, you know, pop music, a lot of boy bands, you know, uh, Backstreet Boys and, and Britney Spears, it was all very producer-driven, very, very slick, very pop uh, records that were, were were dominating sales at the time, so I, you know, I, I guess maybe you know we were a little bit unduly influenced by that sort of stuff, but um, don't really know. I mean, that, that was an odd record, to be honest. Um, you know, we uh, but we got away with it, shall we say? Mm. You know, there's still some good, there's still some very very good songs, and you know, I don't know that. Uh, a lot of people got to hear that record for various reasons, but there's there's some good stuff on it. Mm, I, I caught the tour. I, I actually caught all the tours for all the albums in Dublin, and I think this one was, it was either in the Olympia or the Ambassador. I can't remember, but the songs definitely sounded a lot heavier live. I, you know, I know you did Four Letter Word. It was definitely one of them that oh, you yeah. did live, um, and it just sounded more raw live than it did on the record. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's always the way, isn't it? I mean, a lot of the time, it, it's hard to to keep that sort of edginess in the studio. You know, you tend to kind of put on a few too many coats of varnish. <laughs> um, that's that's inevitable. I suppose. Yeah. Now the next album, songs from, songs from the Sparkle Lounge, Vivian. I just want to move on to that. I don't want to keep you all day. So, um, you got three songs on that that were written solely by you. Was that just you putting your foot down on songs, saying I've got a couple of more songs on this one than the previous ones, or did the guys just pick no, them? No, 
No, no. So back then, I had that's when I had the studio that actually knew how to work. You know, um, so that's part of it. I was actually on my game and up to speed in terms of, of recording my own demos and writing the songs. So uh, that's a big part of that. The other, other part of it is that um, prior to that, immediately prior to recording the Sparkle Lounge record, we'd done the Yeah album, the covers album. Yeah. And the fact that it was a covers album, you know, meant it was really, really quick. You're just, you know, a lot of the, the, the cover songs on Yeah were kind of, you know, not literal reinterpretations, but, but um, you know, they weren't too far removed from the original. Uh, and certain songs were, like uh, uh, Rock On by David Bowie. I mean, obviously, we weren't going to have flutes and stuff. So, you know, we really had to kind of knuckle down on, on that song and a few others to really kind of figure out how to present it as a Def Leppard version. But, but all in all, it was a very easy record to make, and it was a very quick record to make, and we didn't expand an awful lot of intellectual energy on trying to reinvent the wheel. You know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, you know, so falling off the heels of that, we went right into making Sparkle Lounge, and I think we kind of carried some of that that mentality with us. Like, let's just take the path of least resistance here. Joe, you got a great song. Let's just record it. You know, let's not think about it too much. Um, and, and so that was true of all of us, you know. Um, you know, on, on other Leopard records, there is a lot of you know, a lot of chin scratching that goes on, you know, it's like, well, is this the right song for this album? You know, and I, I don't think we set up many of those barriers on the, the Sparkle Lunch album. I think, Vivian, there's one song I think stands out for this, that's for, it's different to me for, with the whole Leopard, a lot of the Leopard catalog, and you wrote it, it's Cruise Control. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very different uh, sounding. Uh, it, it's a sort of a dark song. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so I, I, mean, I, I just came up with that did I did I did I did and that bass riff and I kind of set the tone for the song and yeah, you know, so yeah, um, there you go. I mean, I, I'm kind of surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised we got away with it. You know, go <laughs> go through the um, the, the ringer of, of coming out the the other end of something entirely different. But like I said, it was just we were in that mindset. Just okay, that's a reasonable song. Let's record it as is. You know and. But it was a, an easy record to make. Yeah, on. yeah. Now, a couple of years after that, I believe the Tin Lizzy call came, um, and there was a Scott Gorham that called you. Yeah, um, Joe, Joe and Scott are friends. Scott and I are friends, so we all, the three of us, kind of worked out a deal. It was kind of like a football transfer because we weren't working <laughs> that year. In Leopard. So, like, so they let me go on free transfer <laughs> for a few months with Tin Lizzy United. Um, so that was great. I mean, for me, that was, you know, a bit of a career highlight, actually, because growing up to be such a thin Lizzy fan, to be on stage with Scott and with Brian Downey and playing the songs of my youth, you know, I got to live out all my Gary Moore fantasies right there. Mm. Were you aware that there was a, a percentage of your fan base out there, mostly from the 80s, that they really wanted to see a play, that they felt that it's great being in Def Leppard. You're in one of the biggest bands in the world, but they wanted the old Vivian Campbell where you could see him, like, for want of a better term, shred. Yeah, well, that, that's that's why they should come and see Last of Line. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I... You know, it's still very challenging to play guitar in Def Leppard. I mean, obviously, you know, the focus isn't on, you know, 
16 bar or 32 bar guitar solos, you know, the guitar solos are very concise and usually melodic and, you know, they, they pay service to the song, uh, not the other way around, you know, so, um, you know, I, I, I kind of get it. Yeah. Cause people know me from the deal thing, but like I said, that's why, you know, you should come check out last in line. And, and I'm, I'm really, really fortunate that I get to be in two great bands at the same time, you know, cause it, it'll, allows me to scratch that itch. Hmm. It actually makes me a better guitar player when I go back to play with Def Leppard after being with Last in Line. I know that I'm at the top of my game as a player, you know, and I've, I've gotten to, to to get that release, you know, and go out and, and play like that. You know, and, and it is different being in a two-guitar player band. I mean, working with Phil and Leppard, you know, it, it's, it you know, Phil get through maybe more of the heavy lifting than I do, you know, because a lot of what we're playing is, is stuff that Phil played solos on, you know, like from the 80s. So that's still the bulk of our live show is is made up of uh, songs from albums that predate my involvement with the band, you know. So I'm totally happy with it, but I, I, I get why people, you know, think, well, you know, why does he do this? But it's, it's very, very challenging to be in Def Leppard, you know, and, and it's certainly made me a much better not only better guitar player, uh, ironically, but uh, a better and more rounded musician, certainly as a singer and then as a songwriter, oh. you know? So, um, and like I say, I, I get to go off and do, do shows with Last in Line and, and be the only guitar player and yeah. get to play as many, as many notes as I can. Mm. When you were with Lizzie, you must have had a list in your head before you went to rehearsal of songs that you wanted to do. Um, oh, yeah. When the set list came out, how many of them were on your list and which ones weren't? Like, what, what were the ones that you never got to play that you really wanted to play? All Black Rose, probably. Um, no, <laughs> no, most, of them were on, most of them were on the list, I got to say. The only song that, that Scott and Brian didn't really want to play that I really wanted to play every night was The Rocker. It was it was a bit of a struggle getting them to play the rocker. They didn't want to do it at all at first, and then eventually said, "Okay, we'll do it as an encore." And, uh, and then the next show, I'd say, "Can we do the rockers?" The encore again, and Scott would say, oh, "Not tonight," you know. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. That that was the only one, but every every other song on, on the list, I was more than happy to play. You know. Mm. And of course, in the last couple of years as well, you've got to do another River Dogs record. That that must have been a surprise that you got to do that. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, we did a record called California. It came out in 2017 on Frontiers Records. Um, and it's an exceptionally good record, I gotta say. Of course, it, you know, fell off the face of the earth about a week after being released, <laughs> as expected. But, um, you know, it's like you don't make these records like that. I mean, even going into it, we all knew the four of us, you know, we knew it wasn't going to get a lot of traction. Not a lot of people were going to get to hear it. You kind of make it for the, the, the hardcore fans of River Dogs, the people who appreciate the, that band, and you make it for yourself, really, you know? And it's something I'm very, very, very proud of. You know, I, I still have it in my car, and I listen to it a lot, mm. you know? Um, it, it makes me smile. It makes me happy, because I know that, that you know, we created a beautiful piece of art. Even if very, very few people get to realize it, it's, it's still there, and it exists, and it's very fulfilling as a, as a creative person to actually be able to do that project like that. You know, it's not all about, you know, sell out shows and film a million records. I mean, it's nice when that stuff happens, but, but sometimes the music is just its own reward. Hmm. And that's, yep. that's the, the case with that. Yeah. Now Vivian, I'm a big fan of the, the 
self-titled Def Leppard album that came out, I think, what, five or six years ago now. How do you feel about that album now? I feel it's a great record. Um, I, I do think it's probably the best record that the band has made in, in all the years that I've been with the band. You know, but I, I ironically, it's the one that I've had the least to do with. <laughs> you know? Was that um, was that because of your health? health? Yeah, yeah, it was mostly because of my health. I was dealing with cancer and I had yeah. back surgery. I couldn't travel and stuff, and it just it was a bad year for me. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't a bad year for the band. You know, the the, the guys wrote some great songs, and, and we, we managed to make a great record. Mm. Now, now, you know the Leopard guys 30 years now, and Joe's at his projects, and Phil has his projects outside Leopard, and, and you as well, but why do you think Rick Allen and Rick Savage don't play with anyone else? Um, I, I would guess that Rick doesn't play with anyone else because, you know, being a one-armed drummer, it, it takes a unique kind of band to play with you. I mean, it's it's difficult for Rick to just go into a situation and and jam, you know what I mean? Like he, he really has to focus on, on how to play his parts. There has to be a lot of forethought goes in it and stuff. So uh, I would imagine it's, it's probably just that, you know, he's maybe, you know, gives all, all his mental energy to, to just playing with Leopard. Um, you know, Rick does have other creative outlets. I mean, he's a very talented artist. He's been doing that for many, many years and um, gets better and better at it. Uh, Sav has only ever been in Def Leppard. It's the only band he's ever been in. Yeah. So I, I think with Sav, maybe it's, it's a, a point of pride, you know, that he, he is the best player in Def Leppard and has been since he was a kid and will be till the day he dies, you know? So, so maybe, I mean, I, I'm, I'm totally guessing here, but maybe it's just something like that, you know, that he just kind of wants to, he doesn't want to dilute the waters, you know? Mm. How do you think the band has stayed grounded? Because, they always come across as just grounded guys. Like they all, they all get on. I, you don't do the separate tour bus thing. You're all in the same changing room, from what I hear. Um, that's mm-hmm. kind of unusual these days, Vivian. It, it is unusual. Yeah, I, I think it comes down to the, the collective ego thing again. I mean, the the you know the ego is, is Def Leppard the band, not the individuals. You know that everything is in deference to the music. The music is more important than any of us. Uh, always has been and always will be. You know, when we're no longer here, you know, the music will, will outlive us all, you know. And so it's all about the work ethic and the greater good, you know. So there, there is that kind of mentality to Def Leppard. There always has been, you know. And um, like I said, it's a very, very, very unique band. Mm. Um, so how's the writing coming along on the new Last in Line record? It's going good. Um we uh, you know, we actually gotten well into it pre-COVID. Um, we had recorded half of the album already back in January of 2020. And um, <clears throat> that was the last time I had traveled out to LA and we went to the studio, we cut a half dozen tracks. Um, and then unfortunately, you know, as everyone knows, it again, the kind of world stopped. And, uh, we're also in in the midst of negotiating a new record deal. We've actually already negotiated. We're about to sign, um, literally like in the next week or two, we'll have ink on paper. So um, we do have half an album that we need to finish. We've got a load of song ideas, and we work super quick at Mastermind. So it's just a question of when I can travel again, because um, we, we're not the kind of band that can 
really work over the internet and share files and stuff. I mean, we could, but that's not how we do it. I mean, we, we go into the room and we, you know, we make eye contact with each other and we, we do it old school. So, and that's how I'd like to finish this record. So, um, I would anticipate that sometime in the coming months I'll be able to get together with those guys and finish up a record. Mm, what about new leopard music? Any update on that? Oh, there is always going to be new leopard music, yes, indeed. Okay. And you have a lot of stuff written for that, too, I take it. There's a load of new leopard music. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's like, there's more, a lot more than one album's worth of, of music in the leopard camp. And yeah, you, you must I mean, be... Everyone, everyone in leopard writes, you know, and, and it's always a pretty constant thing, you know? Yeah, because you... You guys don't have to write music anymore. You guys could just go out and play Hysteria and Pyromania and Adrenalize night after night after night and not even worry about new albums. And you still want to make new albums. Yeah, yeah well, it's important to exercise that creative muscle, you know. Yeah. I mean, even if it's just for yourself. Like I said, you know, going back to that Riverdogs comment about the California album, you know, you do it for yourself. You do it because you have to do it. It is what you do. Otherwise, you're you're just treading water by, you know, we know when we go on tour, we're going to play Photograph, we're going to play Sugar, we're going to play Hysteria, Rocket, Animal, you know, Rock of Ages, we're going to play all of those songs, and it's, um, you know, it, it's it's still exciting to be able to do that, because it's the audience that makes it exciting for us, but, you know, it, it's important for us to, to like I say, exercise the creative muscle and, and keep on keeping on, even if, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily want to hear new music from Leopard. I mean, there are some people that do, but, um, and you never know, you know, maybe one of these days we'll make an album or write a song that, that finds its way into a movie and becomes a huge hit. You know, mm. it's, all, all things are possible, but you, you got to keep moving forward. You got to keep making forward momentum. Yeah. So final question for me, Vivian, and thanks for your time. Um, give me a funny Jimmy Bain story. Oh shit. Oh, well, there's a lot of those. Uh, <laughs> Give me one you can I can put on the air. <laughs> okay, Jimmy. Jimmy got into a bar fight in Kansas. I think it was in Kansas City on the Holy Diver tour, um, and we had a night off in the city before the show. So the following night, we played the show at some theater, in Kansas. And back then, we only had one little wardrobe case that we shared. We all shared closing and uh, so it's about 10-15 minutes after the performance we're in the dressing room and all of a sudden there's a, a knock on the dressing room door and we hear this booming voice going James Bain and it's the cops it's the cops they come to arrest Jimmy <laughs> <laughs> so Jimmy got, Jim, we put Jimmy in the wardrobe case and uh, a couple of the tech guys pushed the case out past the cops uh, and Jimmy escaped scot free into the night and, and onto the tour bus and across state lines. Uh, <laughs> that was, but that's just Jimmy. I mean, that's that's how Jimmy lives his life. I mean, just he was on the edge everywhere, you know, he had a drug bust or a bar fight or something. <laughs> right. I, I don't really, I don't mean to make it sound like he was a violent guy. He actually wasn't. I mean, it totally wasn't his fault, you know. I mean. It, it was the other person surely had been arrested by Jimmy, but uh, Jimmy was a very, very gentle soul. Actually, he was a very funny guy, and but he he couldn't help himself, you know. I mean, mm, great was, song, great uh, songwriter. 
Yeah, it's a very, very great songwriter indeed, yeah. Very creative person. Yeah, so Vivian, you right. got, I know you got the box set coming out um, with all the albums that, you know, later on in Leopard. I think Yeah's on it and Songs in the Sparkle Lounge and I think X is on it as well. I think that's just coming out around now as well. I'll take your word for it, Richie. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's coming out on vinyl okay. and, and it's, you know, the box set that they've released, they were started with the early years and then they did the later albums. I think this one is just on the okay. way out now. Got it. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So listen, Vivian, I'm going to leave you go. You've been, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Richie. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah. I, I, any social media sites you want to give out where people can get in touch with you? Uh, no, I don't do social media. <laughs> You're better off. Pain in the arse. Pain in the arse, yeah. So anyway, hopefully you'll be able to go home soon like myself. Yeah, one hopes. Indeed. Yeah. Hopefully. All right, Viv. Well, I'll leave you go. All right, too. All right. Great talking to you. I'll see you soon. All right. Thanks. Bye. And there you go. A full career retrospective with uh, Richie's fellow Irishman, Vivian Campbell. And uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, it does really cover everything. You know, you've got a new wave of British heavy metal with Sweet Savage. And you've got project stuff in there. You've got an iconic band like Def Leppard. And, of course, the uh, incomparable original Dio band. And, you know, all this good stuff that Viv has done. Pretty uh, pretty stellar career, working with a ton of people. And, yeah, I think it's a pretty good subject to cover for episode 500. And also, absolutely one that uh, is making a much longer episode than we've run for uh, quite a few months. And, yeah, overall... Definitely kind of more of an anticlimactic one than most people would have for uh, for the 500 of the show. But with COVID and all that, it's, uh, it is what it is. And this is what we're rolling out. And we just, uh, we just keep on keeping on. And, you know, almost a half a joke about what don't know what we're doing, uh, getting through 501 yet. And so we'll see exactly what it is we bring up for next week. Because, uh, yeah, we're just... We discussed it a little bit after the uh, Skype call, and yeah, we have no effing clue what we're doing. But we will be doing something, that is for sure. So anyways, you know, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. And, uh, you know, all the support over the years as well. For those of you who've been with us since the very beginning, I you know definitely thank you for that. A lot of episodes, a lot of years under the belt. And it's funny that when we started way back, you know, people, you'd say you were doing a netcast or a podcast or something, and a lot of times you get a quizzical look about what the hell that was. And now it's something that's more of a mainstream thing with all the streaming services doing it. And I think even Spotify is going to start to do a a payment plan thing for podcasts and things too. And so all of a sudden, here we are, you know, 11 years later, and uh, we're doing this mainstream thing. Seems kind of odd. Oh, yeah, one more thing too as well. I just wanted to mention that, uh, you know, towards the end when Richie was asking about new stuff coming out from Leopard and he does refer to uh, volume three of the limited edition box sets and, you know, saying they were imminent. So just to kind of put a time frame around imminent, I believe that we're looking at somewhere towards the end of June for those. Uh, But those are limited edition vinyl and CD sets. So especially for those of you that have gone out and bought volume one and volume two, you're not going to get the full Def Leppard logo on your shelf unless you go out and get Volume 3. So, uh, yeah, be sure to check that out. But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So, for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, thanks for listening. Have yourselves a great metal week. Be safe out there. And until we talk to you again next week, like I've said for so many years and so many episodes... Remember, focus on metal. Everything else is in
still here, it's over. Go home.